welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Contact Tracing the Coronavirus, Part 3. Heather Hatcher of the City Bar's Health Law Committee and Science and Law Committee, Wesley Paisley, Secretary of the City Bar's Information Technology and Cyber Law Committee, and Tim Peterson, a member of the City Bar's IT and Cyber Law Committee, speak with Christopher Doerr, a research compliance associate at Weill Cornell Medicine, John Catt, Director of Technology Development and Data at the Office of the New York City Public Advocate, and Tanya Blocker, a senior in-house counsel at National Grid. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. We continue the discussion with panelists from Mathnews, great panelists I might add, to address employment issues, data security, and vulnerable populations. John Catt is the Director of Technology for the Office of Public Advocate. Jamani D. Williams. John will guide us through the technological issues. Tanya Blocker is a senior in-house counsel at National Grid and provide guidance on labor. And Christopher Doerr is a research compliance associate at Whale Cornell Medicine, where he investigates allegations of scientific and research misconduct and will follow up with ethical issues to consider. Hi, Tanya. To follow up with the morning session with Hever, Professor Joe, and Dr. Bryant, who do you think should lead the charge of contact tracing? Employee or employer? Or is it the government? Um, I, I think it depends on, I think contact tracing is a phase in process, right? A lot of the reopening guidelines, particularly in New York and, and, and the Northeastern states are requiring some type of contact tracing at the employer level. Um, and they're requiring coordination with the Department of Health um, for their contact tracing. So there is some responsibility or obligation or onus on the employer to at least conduct, um, even if it's an intermittent contract tracing, to conduct that at their level. Um, as for an overall contact tracing system, no, I mean, you know, it depends on the type of employer it is, right, and the size of the employer. But even if you're a large corporation, right, you still don't have the bandwidth to do a, a, a wholesale contact tracing for every one of your employees, particularly if they're going places that you're right, like I'm an essential, um, my job is an essential function or essential infrastructure. So we do go a little um, beyond, right, what non-essential infrastructure employers do. But even in that regard, I can't do a contact tracing for someone that decides to travel to, you know, Florida on their vacation. And now I have to contact trace, you know, in Florida, uh, where, where I'm in New York. Yeah, no, it, it's quite difficult uh, for employers to take on this responsibility, especially if they're dealing with either if they're multi-state uh, corporation, international, or just a mom and pop shop. Absolutely. And, and that poses to the next area, whereas what are they going to do regarding to university, universality, interoperability, and it being, you talk about being meant the government is kind of leaning on uh, corporations. Uh, do you think that this is something that they could lean back into the government of cooperation, like a, a communication back and forth and, and so off? Like kind um, of, uh, or you think it's more hands off? Because, and consider OSHA, the way it's right now being hands off when it comes to COVID-19. Right. And then the states are becoming more hands on. Absolutely. Right. Yes. I mean, to your point of OSHA, OSHA has even, they are, everything is guidance for OSHA. Like nothing has formally changed with respect to OSHA. Um, and, and you would think they would be the drivers uh, behind, behind this whole process, given right, the general duty requirement that, that they are the enforcers behind, but they're not. Um, the states have definitely 
uh, took the lead um, and, and I'm grateful for them for doing so, to be quite honest with you, um, at least New York, um, took the lead in trying to trying to, to limit and control and manage this particular crisis. Um, there is coordination, right? The states are mandating that employers assign um, and specifically identify individuals within the corporation um, to communicate with, uh, for example, the Department of Health, the New York State Department of Health, for that very reason, right? For that, for that purpose of, of engaging in contact tracing. Um, and it, I think that has to be the relationship if we want to um, uh, actually try to control this, the spread of this particular vi virus effectively. I don't think we can play the role of, oh, it's not my responsibility, I'm hands off. I think both are integral parts of this process if our goal is to try to reduce and get back to some semblance of normalcy or you know what people are calling the new normal mm -hmm. true yeah that is definitely something we have to consider and so i'm going to push to another uh perspective in labor is company device versus personal device i think it was about five or ten years no a decade ago when people started saying bring your own laptop bring mm -hmm. your own and then a lot of labor attorneys were just scrambling like i don't not sure if i want this exactly. uh, liability and of course you guys went through it but now do you want to go through this with uh, contact tracing do you want the person who's using their device their personal cell phone to place an app either created by the company or the state and then cooperate the employer or do we want the employer to create something else? And if you want to talk about wearables, we could go into that. Or if you want to talk about putting chips into people's body. Oh, I, wow. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, this is that type of podcast. We might go there. Uh, I remember there was one employer, uh, what was it, about two, two to three years ago, that was considering putting chips in their employees, um, uh, on their employees. And some of them consented. I don't know why, but... yeah. I, I think the, con the consenting would have to be like, that's the first barrier that you have to get through, right? There's, this is not going to be some type of mandate to put a chip inside, a, in, inside of an employee. But um, for purposes of, of, you know, bring your own device um, uh, versus the company furnishing you with the device, right? The challenges with that was the company looked at it as a savings. Um, but then from the employee standpoint, that means you can have access to my device if there's a litigation and everything that's contained in the device, right? So that's where there was pushback. And I, I think to some extent, rightfully so. Um, when you're coming, when we're dealing with contact tracing, what information is being recorded in this app? Because there is a way with apps, you can limit what, what information and data that you're pulling from this device. And you can protect all of the other data that should probably be protected um, from a legal standpoint or just from like, just like a moral standpoint and comfortability standpoint. Um, so it, it's, it's, how are we, what, what's the app? What's the functionality of the app? How can we pull the data from the app? What data is being um, retained in this application? And is it readily identifiable to a particular individual? Or is it coming into just like almost like a black box type functionality and you really can't identify or it's, it's so, it's, it's, it, the algorithm has, um, has a, evolve so much that you can't really get to the identifying factors of that particular data and material. So I think there's a lot that goes into um, whether, whether we use an application and then there is a, a huge responsibility on the employer if they're mandating it. No, you're definitely right. And that's one thing I would like, how would you advise uh, labor attorneys when they're taking these uh, opportunities? Like, uh, do I, I obviously want to save money 
as an employer, but I also want to ensure that my employees are safe because uh, right. there's the limitations of the actual app. Like they, they get screened, they mm -hmm. enter a workplace, and we're going to go even more about the complex workplaces, like the WeWorks, but we're going to go with the mm -hmm. simple for one first where it's owned by the company. And how do we know they're moving around uh, in that workspace? And then when they are leaving, uh, how do we know that they're not intermingling with other people who may have COVID-19 coming back the next day and not being the, they're being the specific type that doesn't show a fever, but they're still able to spread the virus. Right. Right, these asymptomatic individuals that that are, are are arguably asymptomatic, but I think there's this data that shows that they do have symptoms. They're just not attributing those symptoms to COVID, um, necessarily COVID nineteen. But I mean, as a as a as a employment or labor and employment attorney and advising on utilizing apps, like I need to. So I think there are two different categories here. We have the apps that are doing symptom checks. Mm -hmm. And then the applications for understanding whether you're doing social distancing or location so that we have some material to record um, um, should we need to do contact tracing. The symptoms checks app, um, you know, we need to verify that the information can be maintained, um, maintained separate and apart from their personnel file. Uh, we need to maintain the, inf the information as private and confidential information. And the employer has to have a system in place to do that, right? It can't be that the employer is just saying, I'm going to put it with my personnel file or even have HR do it and not have a processing in place, a control in place where these two things are separate and people can't access this information. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's one for the symptoms check. When you have a symptom check and someone, let's say, answers yes to I have a fever of 100.5, um, 100.4 or higher, then what are we doing? What is being done? What are we doing with that information? How are we recording that information? There's an obligation from the state to report those particular individuals to the Department of Health so contact tracing can be conducted. Again, the same processing with respect to privacy has to, has to be in play. So um, for best practices in that regard, you need to make sure you have strong controls in place for purposes of privacy, for uh, you know contact tracing, as well as for symptom checks, uh, and and you need to if you're if you're doing a uh, a farming out of uh, for purposes of the app, you're not creating the app internally, but you're farming it out to 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 a, a data broker or something like that. You need to understand the intricacies of that data broker and how they're retaining that information as well, because that's going to be a responsibility for you. So. Um, I, those those two would, would would be things I could I would consider and your budget, right? Like what are your budgetary concerns in trying trying to enforce this? There are a lot of people because this is more complicated. They're going they're opting for the paper, right? Like do your self assessment, mark it off, and we'll just hold the paper. You know, particularly in the visitor context, we'll hold the doc, the papers because people are not having as many visitors coming into their facilities. We'll, we'll hold the, the, the paper, we'll do a, a recording of, of that and maintaining that. And that's really easier for, to keeping separate from your personal file because it's paper, but it's more onerous um, because now you have to vet through all of this, this, this paper, which, which you really don't want to. So thank you, Tanya. Thank you very much. How does this apply to shared workspaces where you have multiple employers? Right. Great question. I think um, so. So from the employer standpoint and the WeWorks, right, they're not employees 
um, necessarily, right? You, you have the designation of a contractor, which has a different uh, responsibility and obligation to those particular individuals. Then you have a, a, a manager or management or owner of that particular building and the tenant that's renting the building. Um, and there are different responsibilities aligned um, to, to, to that particular relationship. Um, in New York, um, I'll, I'll focus on, they, they, they use the language of the responsible party and the responsible party in a commercial management type relationship or a management tenant relationship. Um, it's very clear in the guidance for purposes of COVID. And that guidance says there needs to be some type of collaboration and, and, and communication between, I'll say, the manager or owner of the building and the tenant. Um, and that co op co uh, collaboration and coordination needs to delineate who has the responsibility to make sure all of the um, safety measures and um, controls and health um, policies and procedures, including uh, contact tracing, including um, symptom checks, are implemented and who's going to manage it. Um, and, and the guidance will also say if you're a tenant and have employees in the building, then it's your responsibility. The only responsibility of the, built, the building owner and the manager is to communicate that to the tenant. Um, where you have instances where you have shared spaces, uh, whereas you may have half of it is, is being housed or, or um, occupied by your, your employees, and then the other half is by contractors, but you're not managing those contractors, you're just renting, but you're using common areas, right? So the, the copy machine, the, 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 the um, uh, bathroom, the um, copy rooms and things of that nature, cafeterias, there are guidance uh, and guidelines on, on that as well. And, and that is that the employees, individual employees themselves have a responsibility to clean after themselves um, in those common areas. And, and, and the employer and the building owner has a responsibility to furnish that type of PPE or cleaning materials to the employees so that they can be cleaning on a regular basis. Um, and, and, and there's a monitoring obligation um, for purposes of whoever is the responsible party, quote unquote, in making sure that these guidelines are, are being complied with um, because New York has started inspections as well already with respect to, to, to COVID compliance. Um, so, really? so, so yeah, they have, they started last week um, and, and this week. And I knew it was coming because you know, a couple of weeks ago they were fining, you know, giving fines to restaurants and taking restaurants uh, licenses away for a lack of face covering. So we, we knew it was coming, it was down the pike. Um, and, and they're actually, and the fines are pretty significant. Um, yeah. They could be up to $10,000 for some of, some of these fines. So um, that, that's how I would look at, um, it, it's, it's a complicated process. Um, it really is, but we can't, I don't think employers or even owners of a building can put their head in the sand so to speak, and say it's the other person's responsibility um, because there's no, the guidance, what's our standard? The, the, the CDC is supposed to be the standard um, when really, I mean, that's what our employers are gonna argue is the standard. Um, but, you know, certain states have a more rigid um, guidance and certain states are actually not even complying with the CDC standards. And again, all of this is guidance. We don't even know how the courts are gonna litigate this yet. So. There's a lot of ambiguity um, to date, and, and now it's just, it's about just having acumen and making your, your best decision possible for, for your workforce. Thank you.
Welcome. So Tanya, I just had a quick question just to talk a little bit about what, if any obligations employers have to their employees for letting them know when they are at risk or might have been exposed to COVID. Right. Um, great question. And, and the CDC, as well as the, the um, EEOC and OSHA spoke, um, spoke to, to, to that particular issue. The employer, you know, for purposes of contact tracing, you need to disclose to a group of employees that they may have been exposed to a COVID positive person. So that's one. Uh, the, the complication comes in how do you share that information with, with, with a group of, of employees? And then how do you maintain the privacy of that particular um, employee? Um, you can share with the group of employees that that particular individual possibly came into close contact with. And of course, that's defined also what is close contact. That is also defined. Um, but you can share with them, you may have been exposed to a COVID positive person, um, but you can't identify who that person is, right? So there's still an obligation that, that you can't identify who the person is. I was on a call with, um, or a Zoom call with the EEOC um, commissioner, and we posed a question as to what if the employer finds out um, the identity or employee finds out the identity of the individual from a, a coworker, right? Because that com employee came to work and said, oh, I'm not work at work the next day because I was COVID positive. And they start sharing that information with other coworkers. Um, it's not coming from the employer. The employer didn't have constructive knowledge um, or direct knowledge of it. They didn't disclose the information. Um, and the EEOC commissioner actually stated, right, they, they put the way they would view that is there's some obligation on the employer, even if the employer didn't disclose the information, that it, it, it reprimand or at least admonish that particular employee who's sharing the identity of that particular information, particularly if you know that they're, that's who is actually sharing the identity of that COVID positive person. Um, if the COVID positive person is doing it, right, like we can't. It's not much control the employer has, but you do need to put in a have a have a good faith um, attempt to try to to maintain, and you should still um, share. You know, you must share with the potential people that were exposed, either by putting up a posting, um, by emailing them, the group individually, saying there was exposure at this particular facility. Um, even if it's not from the person, the person was in that particular room, right? Because we know it can be on surfaces. That still has to be shared. There's a whole process with respect to decontamination and putting that process in play to decontaminate the, the facility before employees come back. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Um, any, sorry, any more questions uh, ever? I just keep going, but I'm going to let other people talk too. I was just saying. I agree. It's so, was so interesting, Tanya. Thank you. You're welcome. I think others should chime in. Yeah. So, Chris, uh, thank you. I have a question. You work in, com uh, in some area of compliance. I mean, uh, definitely institution research boards. But what happens when one of your employees, as Tanya said, may find out that someone else has COVID-19 and then they start um, spreading it around the office. How would you handle that as a person that's talking about compliance, conflict of interest and maintaining the, the quorum of the office? How would you handle that? So uh, that certainly would 
turn into an HR issue right away, right? Uh, I think once you find out, because they, they have been the ones who've been detailing the step-by-step how to check in before you get onto uh, campus for me, or at least a uh, place of employment, right? And the do's and don'ts, uh, just like we were speaking about earlier, uh, Cornell does have an app as well, which you could have on your work phone or your personal phone. And, and, and you have to answer a few quick questions to give yourself clearance to enter uh, for that day that you're going to work. Uh, somebody were to have been exposed, I think a couple of things are gonna be checked. First thing first, uh, has that individual or that employee, did they complete the COVID attestation? And then from there, what were their answers? Uh, because I, I think you know there's a difference between uh, somebody spreading it or contaminating others or the environment unknowingly and knowingly. So I, I think uh, that's something that has to be identified initially. But again, uh, just like on the initial outset when COVID-19 was first starting to break out, uh, I think before most offices sent everybody to work remotely, uh, unless you were deemed essential, I, I think it was semi the wild, wild west, right? We were still trying to get an understanding as to what was going on. And I, along with my colleagues at other shops, I think the common conversation was, hey, rumor has it so-and-so has contracted COVID-19 because they're not there anymore. And I think immediately, uh, at least in my office, in the admin offices, that floor was asked to immediately, if, if you were still at work, leave. If folks uh, were out, there's an immediate communication sent to everybody to not return. And if you were there to leave, and that's when they have to start doing the due diligence, right? Again, uh, finding out who the individual was and where they had been, whom they had been in contact with. I think on the front end, when things were initially happening in March, April, uh, this is before we had the set devices and mechanisms to try to keep track of things. But now uh, with these uh, attestation and these opportunities, so at least share what you're feeling. Uh, you know, no, the self-diagnosis, it's tough, but you can, gauge the general symptoms, right? The no sense of smell, the uh, just any anything under the sun, you have to be able to share that. So yeah, I, I think it's once there is an identified uh, case within the workplace, I, I think really it's HR that takes over and they've worked in tandem with compliance, but uh, HR and legal really take over the next steps of how to handle that. And I think, you know, every office, every shop is a bit different on how they approach it, but I think it's standard for just an evacuation of at least that floor, right? And then the uh, very common for a lot of these buildings to house multiple businesses, not so much okay. in the WeWork concept okay. of the shared space, but, you know, different, there might be different law firms, companies on different floors. And so that company, if they've identified an outbreak or some type of contamination, that's an immediate communication that has to be going to the overall building owner, right? And building management for them to also identify uh, and articulate that information to the other businesses. Because again, uh, a lot of shared elevator banks, uh, a lot of brushing by into these larger corporate buildings, uh, again, going in and out. And they're just thousands of people, especially where we are, we're here in Manhattan. But I think, you know, if the number is more than one, that that's risk, right? And we know that this spreads, so. What if one of your scientists is 
working on contact tracing. Mm -hmm. Now this is in your realm. This is not HR. And they see an employee's relative and they see the information and they're not following their ethic guidelines and they decide to share that information. So in that regard, uh, right off the bat, you know, we're concerned about HIPAA laws, right? And privacy issues. Okay. Privacy I'm also going to stop you there. I don't really believe HIPAA is going to always work, but go on. Right. No, no. But, uh, but those are the concerns, the initial concerns, right? You're talking about uh, finding out other individuals' data, right? Their uh, patient history by default of reviewing another individual's. So they, uh, the secondary person, right? For the third party, they didn't reach out. They didn't share information necessarily willingly with this said doctor in your hypothetical, right? So I think the, and again, I think this happens very often, especially when you're looking into the world of contact tracing. When an individual has been identified, I think one of the main things or the, one of the main uh, mechanisms is we've got to reach out to other individuals who may have been contacted. But similar to what we've seen uh, in the past with HIV uh, information, you don't necessarily reach out to a potentially infected person and identify who the individual was that infected them, but you let them know uh, there's a strong chance that you may have been or that you may have contracted this disease uh, here, COVID-19. So I, I think the step, because we're talking about people's lives, right? This is a very serious very uh, dangerous pandemic going on. And so if you do have the knowledge, and in this hypothetical, again, if that one scientist does have the knowledge that some individual who's not an employee who originally got tested, but a third party by default of that employee, uh, they have to get that information as soon as possible to know to get tested and to take the proper next steps. Yeah, but there's still an epic question about a scientist finding data about an employee's relatives and telling that relative without permission of the company. It, it poses the question of like, let's say this is a caring scientist, make it even difficult. They see the relative, they go like, I have to tell this relative that they may potentially have COVID-19, but it's not their job. Their job is to stay and process the data. How do you console that um, employee? I, I think it's, you know, it does come down, it, that's a tough space. That's a, they're definitely a gray area, right? Because these are things that are just popping up. These are situations that can happen at any time. Uh, and you want to think that the knee jerk reaction is going to be thoughtful, right? And caring. But I, again, uh, this is something that easily would have to rope in legal with, right? To discuss this a bit further, as far as, you know, how did we get this information? How did this scientist necessarily stumble upon this information? and ultimately the severity of what we're finding. I mean, if this is a COVID test and we're finding a third party family member of an employee, uh, again, depending on how likely it is that that person is contracted, uh, I think, and again, we haven't necessarily dealt with this directly, but just thinking about it, you can speak to the main individual to let them know. I think the opportunity is always there. Again, the employee who initially agreed to share their information, I think you definitely would circle back and communicate with them and to let them know uh, there are other persons that are close to you that have been identified, uh, not necessarily putting the onus on that employee, but 
that is where the conversation can be had, right? To, again, try to do the right thing and let other people know that they're potentially in danger. Uh, but again, it's, I think at the end of the day, it's about that consent. Okay. So thank you very Tanya, much. I think you have I, a I comment. Just, I just want to chime in on that answer because that's an interesting um, hypothetical. Um, and I think that, you know, it, if I'm looking, if I'm thinking about it with respect to if someone identifies as being, having some of the symptoms, um, then they go through this other channel and our, in our, my company, it's, they go to health and well-being. Um, and they, there's a further inquiry into who they've been around, what family members they've been around, where they've been, whether there's symptoms from their family members, et cetera. And depending upon how conservative, you know, that particular nurse practitioner is, they're going to tell that person to self-quarantine. And in the scenario that you just gave, it's, it's the, uh, it, it's the scientist discovering that an employee's family member tested COVID positive. And then, so the, the danger is from an OSHA standpoint and general duty and prohibiting with respect to, to, to hazards in the workplace, that employee, depending upon the relationship with that family member, particularly if they're in the same household, that employee could potentially be exposed, right? The, 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 the level of contagion of, of, of COVID-19 is so high, more likely than not, that employee was exposed. So now you have an obligation to not only that employee, but the rest of the employees that that particular employee is in contact with, right? To, to contact trace. So what's what's the privacy concerns and obligations and, and does and does it is it outweighed by by the, the, the greater good of, of maintaining a workplace that is safe and hazard free and is not exposing, right? I mean the only reason we can do contact, we can do temperature temperature testing or even symptom checks is because COVID-19 has been identified under the ADA as a direct threat. That's the only reason, right? So that's the level of severity for COVID-19. So in that, in those confines, they're, they're, that's the gray space that we're working in. And in that scenario, I mean, best practices would be to, to, to protect the rest of the employees that are in, at, in that space over Right, that one individual's um, privacy, and I, I may just settle that case if I have it. Agreed. That's that's a, that's an interesting hypothetical. Okay, I want to take a step back and talk about actually the processing of the data, and uh, I'm going to reach out to John about this. Uh, so, John, just kind of give us a quick overview of the technology that's used in digital contact tracing as compared to in-person contact tracing, which I think I'll start trying to fill in or so off. So this is tech-driven contact tracing versus yes. manual contact tracing. Yes. Okay, so for tech-driven contact tracing, they, everyone really needs to use Bluetooth signaling because while we do have cell data, Wi-Fi data, and other location-based data, it's not nearly accurate enough to use in this instance. So all versions of tech-based contact tracing for right now are using Bluetooth. And so all of the large scale systems that are being built, right now they're just frameworks. Google and Apple are the two biggest ones building what they're calling contact tracing frameworks that then health companies or other companies and governments are going to build on top of. And so when this app, it, when this feature is enabled on a person's phone, the Bluetooth is always going to be on. 
you have no control at that point once it's on. Once you turn this feature on, Bluetooth always has to be on. But let's, let's slow this down, sir. You're telling me from panel one, one of the scientists said I should go on my phone and I could, uh, which is a beautiful Android. I, I'm not getting paid by Android, but I'm just saying there was an option that says I could enable COVID-19. Mm. You're saying once I turn this on, I, I can't turn it off? No, you can't turn it off. Okay, Once you okay, turn this on, sure, you can't sure turn Bluetooth off. Okay. You can't okay. because you you can turn Bluetooth on and off on your phone, but once yeah. you have contact tracing on, it needs to remain on, which uh, not a whole lot of people are talking about. But this is a side note: really drains batteries. So they have d started doing tests, and the people when they're walking around now, batteries only lasting like five hours because Bluetooth, especially as it's pinging with everyone around them, really is a battery drain on on these devices, and so. The Google and Apple both are trying to keep as much data off of each other's systems uh, mm. that is personally identifiable as best as they could. So when I pass you on the street and the metrics by which a token is shared are variable at this point. So the terminology is like how close for too long, like that's the metric that they're using. How close right now seems to be like six and how long seems to be a range of like five to 10 minutes. And as you set that bar barometer, then it's going to exchange tokens. And right now you would have given me a token that my phone would keep for 25 days if we met that too close for too long meter. And then you, if you test positive, you go in, it has to be verified. You're can get through the app built on top of the framework, the healthcare provider to send into that application that you are test positive for COVID-19. This is to get away from the false positive problem where a bunch of people might try to cause havoc walking around and then just start putting in the app that they you know, tested positive randomly throughout the city um, or wherever it might be. And so, once this healthcare provider has signified to the app that you have indeed tested positive for COVID, then that key that I have is sent back to Apple or Google or whoever's holding the framework at that point. And then they send that key to all of the devices that have contact tracing on. And it'll cycle through all of the, the IDs that are stored locally on my device. And if any of them are matched, it will tell me that I was at one point too close for too long with someone that had tested positive within that 25 day range. Um, obviously it's up to the user at that point to decide what they wanna do, but there are a lot of unknowns right now with this because if I turned it on for 10 days and then turn it off, I might not receive that key that was sent back down from Google or Apple mm -hmm. if I had it still indeed come in contact with someone. So there are bugs like this that are, that are still definitely be wor worked out by developers. But going a step back, like how did we even get to the point where we thought that Bluetooth location-based tracing was going to be feasible or even worthwhile we nobody knows the answer to that right now tech contact tracing has not been proven to work on this scale um you really all of the developers right now say you need a really high opt-in rate to get enough people with all, enough devices 
sending their keys back and forth for this to really start to give tracers enough of a net, um, as it were. And, and then there are, you know, a couple of scenarios that when we started doing research into the tech component of it, uh, scenarios that tech contact tracing can't really account for. So our one example was bus driver in New York City. He's got the app maybe, but as people come onto that bus, they might not be on that bus for more than 10 minutes. It might, whatever, whatever is a passing interaction, um, these contact tracing apps are not going to pick up. And that's because once you start collecting all more data points, like once you start looks, narrowing that too close for too long window, the noise makes it useless. Like you would get an alert for everyone that you walk by on the street. Um, and it's not really known that even if I stand next to you for 30 seconds on the corner that you, and I have COVID that you won't get it, but you would not have logged it at that moment because the apps can't collect that many data points because the noise would just make it useless. So I'm going to interrupt for a second. Uh, I heard that Thomas Reuters, they actually, if they're using it on campus with their employer, they actually create a time limit of 10 minutes, but it doesn't solve the problem you, you're actually talking about the noise. So that means let's say you're on one corner and you're on the upper corner outside and COVID-19 right now, according to the science, mm. doesn't easily spread outside, but during that proximity for 10 minutes, you would get a notification. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's definitely a problem that we need to discuss. And that's the alternative noise because then I could not have, like it's very unlikely that I would have caught COVID from that interaction, but mm -hmm. I'm going to be adding burden to the healthcare system now because I need, I'm going to, I have, have gotten that alert. Now mm -hmm. I am scared and now I'm going to go in and try to get a test somewhere and in places where testing is not readily available or the healthcare system is strained, you're adding to the problem. And so testing this live, I, I think as we've seen, a lot of states are moving away from that because they, it, the risk really outweigh any potential benefit that they can get from just implementing a manual contact tracing. Mm. So there was one thing that Tanya talked about when she was saying, we were talking about the employer's responsibility when they purchase the app that they have to review the data. Do they, obviously the employer never wants to be liable for the data. Mm. Uh, but let's talk about something key that she, that she mentioned, a logarithm and that it's not being defined. And a lot of them aren't being defined in the contracts that employers get when they're purchasing these apps. Is there something that we should be concerned about a logarithms? Um, I think it remains to be seen. It, you, we're getting many different flavors of these apps being built for different companies in different cities. Houston got, got an app that has a proprietary algorithm. I think the company was based out of New Zealand and they're not turning over anything, but they are just giving underlying data, but they're not gonna turn over any proprietary algorithm. Um, so at that point, you don't really know. And then in more open source systems where if it is hopefully a government institution building their app on top of, again, it hasn't been tested at this scale. So there, it's a little bit of trial and error how they're designing that, that algorithm. Mm, very much so. Uh, hold on. So the other question I want to go more deeper into the data is, is machine learning, since we're talking about logarithms. 
does this lead to privacy concerns that we're not really aware of per se, or this is something that may facilitate the ease of uh, contact tracing? Machine learning. I mean, maybe hypothetically it could, but I don't think you're going to see any potential benefit from any machine learning model on the data collected from contact tracing soon. Like that, that kind of stuff takes a little bit of time. And then also, what are you trying to model with, with that machine learning? And again, machine learning is not an exact science. So when you're dealing with public health, are you going to build a machine learning model, feed some contact tracing data into it, get some insights and then test it? Like what's the barometer here to allow for the use of the insights from that model to be used in a live environment? Unknowns. Nobody really knows. Um, well, let, let, let's stop there. We should start <laughs> thinking about what, what should be the risk assessments. So Heather and Chris, I've got to post you guys. You guys are, Heather, you work in, I think, the health industry. And Chris, you also work in the health industry. Let's say you guys are presented with this really new app. What would be your risk assessments to actually, before you place it out into the population? I think a lot of what has already been said is still, I mean, very important. What are you tracking or tracing? You know, how long uh, was actually the input? What was the input? Was it five minutes? Was it 10 minutes? You know, are you taking into account that somebody could be around you for like five seconds and they sneezed in your face? and coughed on you like that that's probably going to put you at greater risk for contracting COVID-19 than just standing next to somebody who's in a full hazmat suit with a face shield on and a mask and you're doing the same even though you're standing right next to each other or maybe the Bluetooth is picking up somebody who's on the other side of a wall from you so a lot of times technology companies don't like to give you the information on which their apps are based or like these decisions are being made so that but that's something that's really important to know is this useful are we going to get useful information from using this app? And I think John pointed out rightfully so that you don't want to overburden an already taxed healthcare system and also public health system at this point. We don't have testing that's as readily available. And if this can be achieved with a manual contact tracing, then maybe we just use that. I mean, it might be helpful if somebody's contacts are on their phone and that's something they can give to a public health official who, who can use that information to fill in any gaps that uh, recollection is failing on for that particular individual. Like, oh, it's been 10 days since my symptoms first presented. I finally got my test results. And I don't remember what I did, you know, two days before the symptoms presented. Maybe this app will explain or t let me know who I came in contact with, where I went, because I just don't recall. That, that could be very helpful. But before you start rolling it out, I think these are just questions that you wanna have answers to. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, I think you wanna know what type of information are you trying to capture? And then I think uh, going back to the consent factor, uh, I would have a question of what are you going to do with this data? And with that question, I'm really asking more, are you going to monetize this? I mean, the private sector, that's the name of the game, right? And uh, data, as we know, is big business. So uh, I think folks should know essentially what are they signing up for, you know, as far as is this going to be, is my information going to be used for limited purposes or are you going to package this and bundle it? And uh, because I think, you know, data, again, it is valuable. And I think folks want to know 
where their information is going. So that's just add, another layer. Can I just add to that? I want to have a comment on that because it's interesting because so now that using that app, we could potentially identify high transmission communities where communities where there's a great transmission of, of, of um, COVID, right? We already know and it's already been acknowledged that the communities that have a higher risk for COVID-19 are communities of color, particularly African-American communities, because they have right underlying conditions, right? And all of the health disparities is associated with that. We don't have a cure to date for a vaccine for, for COVID-19. And from what I'm hearing, I don't even know we'll have one given the mutation of COVID-19. So now when you're looking from an employer standpoint, do I want to hire from a high-risk community that has COVID-19 um, and then have issues with business continuity, have issues, right? The state offered, right, 14 days uh, for employers at 100 or more, 14 days of pay, and it doesn't pull from any of your other lead banks, right? Are we taking that into consideration? Like, well, I can tell you right now, you shouldn't, right? <laughs> but how... <laughs> How is that data being used ultimately to make decisions when it comes to employment? And, 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 and we are already in this era where AI is very significant in, in looking at and exposing discrimination in the employment context when we're using facial recognition and other types of artificial intelligence in the HR space. So I can definitely see as we're trying to predict what the workforce will look like in the future, um, that data being used, misused. I mean, we can go a, a, a little bit darker than that too, because <laughs> yes, the, the, the communities where we've seen high transmission, you know, minority and immigrant population is in there as well. And then what happens when this data falls into the data brokers that end up working with police or ICE? And right. you're, you're looking at, they don't even need to pinpoint specific people. They have built models where as they build probability of location and mm -hmm. travel habits, they, this data is more valuable than anything they've gotten their hands on, potentially. This, this is dangerous. And I mean, I think there are a lot of other ne'er-do-wells, maybe hackers who would be very happy to get their hands on this level of data. That's right. So how secure are these apps? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Data bank security. Mm -hmm. Well, we've all had experiences, I'm sure, where we have talked or have had a conversation about some product. And then we go on the internet later and magically that private product appears. So right now, the, um, the, the, the technology seems to be only Bluetooth. But could you envision a scenario where the contact tracing software captures, say, a dry cough, or captures people talking about COVID or symptoms or anything like that. And would that be an appropriate use of the data? Like, what do you guys think in terms of how that might play out, and whether there might be pressures to instill something like that if the normal Bluetooth technology is not cutting it in terms of being an effective means of keeping track of people with COVID? Well, I think in, on the public health side of things, they do use other, other technology to try to track um, symptoms. They, there's syndromic surveillance, whereby they actually track um, searches. So they look at what symptoms have been searched in Google most often. And sometimes it can 
it can coincide with, you know, a very popular book, right? Like in the time of cholera, people were looking up that disease. It wasn't an outbreak of cholera, but people were looking up the symptoms. But so they were looking at things like that. I think they also looked at sort of GPS and um, satellite tracking to see in China whether or not the hospitals had more cars parked in their parking lots at the time in like October of last year to see whether or not there was an indication that there was an uptick in ED usage at that mm. time. And maybe that they knew about COVID before we knew about COVID. Mm. So, the, you know, in South Korea used um, a sort of hybrid of contact, tra digital contact tracing, whereby they did this sort of proximity Bluetooth use, but they also looked at closed um, circuit television. And so they were tracking people on CCTV and um, also they were using um, credit card slips and transactions. And, and so they have a lot more access to, their government has a lot more access to your data than, than yeah. we would allow here. <laughs> so they're using all of this technology together to sort of piece together contacts. And it was really, it, it became very stigmatizing for people. And it, of course you have very little privacy when you do that because you can absolutely figure out who was there. They were like tweeting about it. Oh, there was somebody at this particular store who was who ended up being COVID positive. So, I mean, there is a there is a great deal that you can use. I mean, I don't think you can use it here in the United States. It just would not have the political will. Like we don't have the social will to use it. We don't want to use it. We, we like our privacy, but. I've even seen a couple tech groups right now when you talk about like, what else are we looking at other than Bluetooth? There are a couple that are using heart rate. So they've been able to model a specific range of heart rate to a probability that you are infectious with something and that they've been supplementing proximity in the, the contact tracing models with heart rate and other factors. Um, so I definitely think that there are different avenues that they're looking because Bluetooth is not the perfect solution from the tech perspective. It's only what we have. And we definitely use temperature screeners, right? Like we have that in, so entrances to buildings, to our hospitals, we have that. And in our, in our airports, we're going to. From a tech perspective, or maybe from more of an epidemiological perspective, is there a saturation rate in which um, contact tracing is deemed to be effective in terms of the number of people or percentage of people having the application on their phones and walking around with the application active. The, the numbers I've seen, the bare minimum is 50. Again, they, they haven't tested much. Like 50% of the people in a community need to be with that Bluetooth beacon on for it to be effective. The, some of the builders from a group out of MIT were saying it looks like more 60 to 70. It requires quite a bit of opt-in rate for it to be effective. In these communities, how long before the rollout and when it becomes 60 or 70 percent? From my perspective, the vast majority, especially of the at-risk communities, are highly distrustful. So you're looking at years worth of educating them to get that level of, like they're not clicking this on on their, their phones at all. It, if you go to any Facebook group in communities across the city, they're all posting pictures telling people to stop because the government's going to be tracking them through this contact tracing. So they are very afraid of this functionality. Um, and I, I don't see any kind of, unless people started, places started requiring that, if it truly remains 
voluntary opt-in, I don't see 60% anytime soon. Yeah, I'll just note, there was a University of Maryland poll that said only three in five Americans would be willing to use such a digital contact tracing app. And really, when we're thinking about this, we have to think about who actually has cell phones. And so mm. only about 82% of Americans actually have them. I think that's a very large number, but that's, that's problematic when you're trying to roll something out and you're saying that three people don't even want it out of the few, you know, 82% who actually have the phones. And then when you think about who's at risk for this disease, um, older people who are at risk for greater risk for severe disease, only about 53% of them actually have cell phones and half of those probably don't even have Bluetooth on their cell phones because they tend to have older cell phones. So, you know, these are things that we have to take into account when we're thinking about utilizing digital, um, digital contact tracing and technology for this purpose. And as we noted in panel one, there's also the population who doesn't have, that's very mobile, doesn't have access to the software and that population is homeless. Yeah, no, and I think that creates, you know, I don't want to say the forgotten demographic, but the demographics, you know, again, we've already identified them, the minority groups, the, the immigrants, the indigenous groups, the homeless, uh, they, are they going to be priority? Are they going to be prioritized, right? Uh, and at the end of the day, it, it's all about access and accessibility to information, because that's another thing as uh, you know, from today, to, uh, from March to today, we know a lot more, even though there is a lot more to learn about COVID-19. But as we've gotten the, uh, the precautions and the to-dos and the not-to-dos, uh, is that information being disseminated towards or to those other groups as well, right, to help overall combat the pandemic and as well to just overall help the fight to flatten the curve. So we've got to make sure we reach out to communicate to all those groups. Thank you, Chris. Um, and I'd like to move into the next session uh, regarding to post-collection. Who defines when collection processing ends? So that's a good question because I don't know if necessarily it ever does end, right? Uh, I think we- Oh, that's controversial, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'd like to think there would be an end to uh, this pandemic, of course. But as far as finding out information, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, what's been going on now with contact tracing is the creation and the growth of databanks, right? And so as that information starts to grow, um, people don't know necessarily what to do with it after, uh, we'll say the main issue, the infectious disease is under control, if not eradicated, but that information, that data is there. And again, there's big data, it's able to be monetized. So uh, one thing I've learned so far working at, at a research institution, uh, you don't delete anything, similar to like a lawyer, don't delete anything, right? Don't, uh, and so that information is going to be there and so the exact answer of when does contract tracing stop? Uh, I don't think it necessarily stops. I think just the, uh, maybe perhaps the interest or the type of data that's being uh, recorded in mind, uh, you know, it just, it may slow down, but I don't think it ever stops because again, scientists, they're, they're not going to stop with the research, right? And focusing on one thing, uh, you could have the same data set but you can ask a different question, focus on a different variable of it, and it can help to find 
or discover other cures or other potential uprising issues that stem from this initial uh, bad actor. So for the sake of discovery, I would say that uh, contact tracing never necessarily ends. Coming from the public space, when we talk about collecting in mass constituents data, especially when it's this personal, um, and then we're telling our constituents that we're going to hold on to this data indefinitely, basically, always makes me a little bit feel like that's why I'm not going to opt into any contact tracing program because I. I'm coming from an at-risk community. I'm coming from an immigrant population. I'm just coming from somebody who the public space has mistreated for so long. I have an ingrained distrust of this institution. And then you're telling me that I need to opt into this program to basically rejoin society, like to help society restart. Everyone needs to get into contact tracing. But to do that, we need to be able to assure these constituents that the utmost protection and safeguards are going to be put on this data. And in my, from my perspective, the best way to do that is tell them first and foremost, this data is only ever going to be used for the purpose of contact tracing. And unfortunately, from my perspective, I even believe that that means research, this data cannot be used in mass for research for more pandemics in the future. Because once we open up that gate, in my mind, too many times in the past, that data has leaked into the wrong hands. Government institutions, when they have business associations with Palantir and Google and Amazon and all these different institutions, that data has time and time again been misused. And so if I am you know, requiring my constituents to opt in, this is the moment in time where we need to give them the utmost barometer and bar that they can trust. And that means it's never gonna be used for anything else. And at some point we need to define how long that's actually usable for contact tracing. And then after that, it's gone. So you're saying limited data retention, anonymize the data, or do you have any other safeguards that you would implement? Our recommendations so far have been you know, this data first and foremost needs to stay within a government institution. I really don't want to see this with a business relation of, of the government, like a, a Bloomberg or Reuters or anything else like that. Like this needs to stay within the control of the whatever Department of Health agency is running this contact tracing system. Then create a robust logging system. Any access to this data, any use of this data, any input or output of this data, I ne we need to have a verifiable record of what happened. And then once the time that it is no longer usable for that individual that it was collected on, it needs to be removed from the system because there, there's going to be the temptation to use this down the road for something. And this is why we're seeing such a low opt-in rate, I believe here in the city of contact tracers. I don't know what the specific number was, but it was definitely not the 60% that we need uh, for it to be viable. Okay, so let's test your adamancy on this. In this particular realm, Kiefer Sutherland's character in 24 says, a bomb is about to go off. We need this contact tracing information. You give it. It's a national security exception. What do you think? 
How many times has national been security been used for the access of government constituent data and that was not actually the case? What, what possible cause could Keith or Sutherland need uh, the movements of the immigrant population in Bedford's side to, to, from their contact tracing data to stop this bomb? Find it somewhere else. There is an, and that's another point I have. There are m data sources and data collection mechanisms throughout government and enforcement and healthcare that are already existing and operated to prevent those instances that a lot of people are saying, oh, this contact tracing data is going to be amazing for. Continue to use those. Do not use this vehicle that we need high opt-in and trust from the community on and tag things onto it. Keep it solely contact tracing. Yeah, I think there, you know, at a certain point, uh, when you have the data, you know, there, there is an opportunity to make the data de-identifiable, right? So anything from that, you know, from the information that's been taken, you can strip it down so that you won't be able to pinpoint who that individual is, right? But I guess, again, you've got to think about the question, uh, why do we need this information? right? I think the value is, at least in the private sector, right, to get that information, or if it's a government agency with their own specific agenda, like ICE or any other group like that, uh, they, they want the specifics, right? They want the demographics. They want to know where people are moving around. But if there was a way, and again, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to create law here, but <laughs> if there was a way after COVID-19 is done, uh, folks did offer their uh, information into some major data bank, right? But with the acknowledgement or given that consent away, but that acknowledgement that the information will rest in this data bank, but it will be the identified data and no personal information will be put in there. If there's some type of conversation like that, but again, I think there's a reason why they wanted that data in the first place. So to make it the identifiable might go against uh, the whole thought process. Even with the de-identified data set, uh, these communities, you know, they've gotten really good at using de-identified data to pattern trends of specific communities. So I just need to know where it kind of came from, in, like a, a general area, and that's very valuable to me. And the oh. community is afraid of that. They've seen the implications of that in policing. They've seen the implications of that in zoning. You know, fill in the blank. They've seen the implications of that. So even when I tell them, you know, I'm going to remove your name, your phone number, and your ad, your you know, your your actual location, but it's just going to be generalized. They're still afraid because they're communities that are all in the same place. Immigration, immigrant communities, all in the same location. If that data is de-identified and lands in the lap of Palantir, that's valuable. Not as valuable, but they they're still going to be able to use it. No, no, there's definitely value to that. It's certainly monetizable. I agree. But if certain communities, um, minority, immigrant, or simply vulnerable communities, decide to opt out en masse, are those communities dooming themselves to perhaps higher rates of infection and perhaps mortality? I think that those communities are already experiencing that. So it's hard to sort of sell contact tracing as the cure-all. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the argument with right, the, the protests that are going on now, right? People are out and protesting um, and, and people are making these, this argument that, you know, COVID is still going, you're protesting dur during a pandemic. 
and um, you know, you're exposing yourself in the communities that are higher risk for contracting COVID, that's where these protests are, 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 are being um, conducted. And then the rationale, I think, from some, some people that are part of the community is, well, you know, it's either like, I'm already exposed, right? So it's mm. like, you know, you're picking the greater of two evils in this instance. Do I fight COVID and prevent me from something happening maybe a couple weeks from now, or my, my son or cousin or brother or sister or whatever the case may be, potentially being shot tomorrow, right? Like I have to put, there's a prioritization that has to happen. And I guess, you know, to the extent now health and COVID, and if I'm not a part of that high risk population above 60, don't have underlying conditions like the people that are driving this protest are young people who are even if they are exposed they are surviving um the, the exposure to covid so they're willing to take the risk mm. i it's also want to pose about this sure right. what about the other protesters the ones that are going to michigan steps with guns uh it's stating that i don't want to wear a mask at all and that we should not even, and at one moment didn't even believe there was a COVID-19 virus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, right now there's a, a litigation being filed in District Court of Texas where a bunch of citizens are suing the Texas governor stating that your executive orders are denying us our first and fourth amendment rights. And this also, they, I like contact tracing. And this kind of posed to the, to John who was saying like, I would like the government or, or specifically certain actors to collect the data for a specific purpose. But what if the government then uses it and to, to God, John's argument that they use it to use it for other purposes and then they violate right to first amendment speech. That means like you have been defined as that community who has a higher risk of COVID-19 through contact tracing. So now you can't go and protest. Right to association, you cannot come together and just discuss political issues because you will spread contact you you increase the the trade the contraction of the virus freedom of religion you cannot come to church because that is supposedly the hotbed of the uh, of the virus and then you move on to the fourth amendment which i i don't even have to exhaust tim could even talk about this himself uh what do we do uh do we go back to the employer tanya the the companies to do the contact tracing and then what about the employee who doesn't really have any rights with the uh, em employer because remember, uh, with, the sit with the government, we have that constitution between us. Right. But with the employee and employer, it's just a contract, you know, unless you want to go into the constitution and pick, pick that uh, right to contract business. Well, but there's, there's still, we still have to have a, a legitimate uh, business reason for, for, for having access to that information, right? It's mm -hmm. not a wholesale, like particularly if, if, you know, if they're consenting to it and giving us the information, it can't be arbitrary. You still need a, a legitimate business reason for having access to that information. And in some states, you need to disclose what you're using information for, right? To, to John's point of just limiting, right, what this information is being utilized for. In some states, California being one of them, you have to disclose what you're using that information for. It can't just be the company is saying you have, I have a legitimate business reason. And, you know, the, the buck stops really there. Uh, Chris, is this something that uh, needs to be legislated, or is it something by the states? Is this the federal government? Like, oh, are you federal? Are you federalist? Like, you believe in state <laughs> rights? Uh, are you in the, the federal government? You know, that has to level the floor. Are you going by contract, uh, uh, fiat, by saying that? Well, you know what? Institutes research boards. This is your policy. Make sure that you don't 
harass Native Americans when you do this data? What do we, what do, we do? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is something that's tough and it's obviously a sensitive area to regulate, uh, to just, you know, mandate, especially a federal mandate. I mean, let's be honest, uh, our, our president doesn't wear or believe in wearing a mask himself, right? So it, it's very hard to lead by example in that regard. But as far as telling individuals on a federal level or a state level what they have to do as actors, uh, you know, I, I think you can only get as invasive, uh, you can only be so invasive into people's rights. And, and again, the simple notion of, hey, in public, wear a mask, this has created uproar in some communities. So because of that alone, I, I think taking it the next step to ask for tougher concessions, I, I think we already know that's a powder keg just waiting to happen. So uh, again, as far as, you know, guidelines, best practices, and I mean, just you want to uh, acknowledge human decency, but I, I think it's really tough to just federally mandate and regulate on uh, a state level as well. But certainly like Tanya was saying, uh, businesses, private employers, you can't just say, I need this information or I must have this information because I said so. At the end of the day, that's never good enough for anybody if you're an adult, let alone a child, so. My thought was using this information. I mean, they're already anticipating that we'll have a, a, another pandemic, right? Like it, it's not right, whether it'll happen, it is, it, it's when it'll happen and how this particular data could, could aid um, in, 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 in either preventing it or, or reducing its impact um, to the extent that the symptoms are the same um, or, or it's found in a certain group um, I, that, that's where my mind goes, because I envision that I'm sure uh, understanding how, you know, the Spanish flu came about and was resolved, if we had data on that, um, that might have been helpful um, in, in, in this particular climate. And, and, you know, even with Ebola, right, the only reason Ebola wasn't to the level that it is is because it wasn't as contagious, you know, that it wasn't that aerosol type um, contagion. Um, so, uh, you know, how, how would this data help um, and preventing future um, epidemics and pandemics is, is a question that I, I would look to say that that could be helpful, but I think the, the abuse of it may outweigh um, that, that risk, at least at that time, at this time, right? It's all about timing. If we were on the cusp of another pandemic, we would have a different conversation. But right now to think so far ahead, I think that the privacy concerns may outweigh that um, presently. And in that same vein, I, I think the statistics, uh, as Tanya was saying, right, I think as we prepare for the second wave, uh, we will have this first wave to look back to. And we're, you know, we're all about data, numbers, and trends. And I mean, we've done the quarantining for three months, and we've opened up doors, and we're seeing that we have to close them right back up, you know? So it's almost as if these past three months were for naught. So I think as we move into this potential second wave in the fall, I think that may give uh, lawmakers, right, or the politicians the ammunition that they need to federally mandate, or at least on a state level, you know, that you must share this information. But again, I think the numbers are really going to surge and make this, I mean, people are already talking about for our national presidential election, 
the, the statistics and how uh, people are handling the situation is going to be a major factor as well. So uh, definitely, I think the numbers are going to tell a lot. So quick follow-up question, Chris, about this. So how would you, if you were an attorney, uh, how would you approach your institutional research board and creating a policy that actually protects the data? If let's say you're, you're using data post COVID-19. Uh, so I, I think it's just a conversation as far as data retention policies, right? Uh, and I think as we were saying before, we've got to identify why we are doing what we are doing, right? So why do we have this data? What are we potentially holding it on to for? What are we going to potentially research with this? Uh, how, uh, with the actual data, you know, what type of data do we have? Is this the identified data? Are these people's information? Uh, I think you've got to find out what type of consent levels were made when that data was initially retrieved right and because that too will dictate what you're allowed to do with it post uh incubation of all of the information so i, I think you know a just some sort of data retention policy which most institutions do have uh, especially if this is the type of business that you're in but i think it would be as far as creating a policy i think you would have to be thoughtful as far as the why do we have this information what do we want to do with it and you almost have to think uh, for the bad actors, if that makes any sense, as far as, you know, what people could do with uh, negatively, right? What could the bad actors do with this information? And how could we proactively protect and prevent that from happening? Because there's always a conversation of, is this, especially at a research institution, um, having that data bank, private sector, including the government, but certainly the private sector, they reach out all the time uh, to ask and inquire about information. They might not even know an institution has what they're looking for. That's why they're very, very much not shy to ask about it. But if, especially right now in the times we're in, most, uh, you know, everybody knows contact tracing is being done and people know this information is being stored somewhere and they're going to want that access to it. It might not be today, uh, might not be tomorrow, but if, you know, even if we're talking five, 10 years from now, there's going to be some value in that information. And I think it is up to the folks who are creating the policy, uh, especially around that data retention to be thoughtful of what can happen. Because uh, again, uh, just consenting, an employee consenting to complete an attestation just to say, I'm clear and I'm good to go to show up for work today. Uh, to later on find out that that information is being monetized without their, that individual's consent can be problematic, uh, especially if they were told on the initial outset that this explicitly would not happen with that information that they've shared. So I think you've got to be thoughtful about covering your basis, uh, especially when you're thinking about creating a policy. So John and Hever, how would you craft a policy for city government? How would I craft this uh, policy for city government? Um, I think mine would be very, very strict. And I think I would hope to kind of set a precedent because there's a hole missing right now in, in government policy around what happens with data that government collects. Government collects a lot of data. Government has a lot of legacy data. 
And there's not a whole lot of transparency or oversight as to what's happening with that data, what decisions are being made, who's getting access, how long it's kept like that, that to me is a problem. And so in a policy, I think record retention is, is a good way of looking at it, trying to set the barometer for explicit, why do we need to collect this individual piece of information for, for everything? And you have to be very thoughtful about it. And you need to have the experts at the table. This can't be just tech people or just lawyers in a room. You need to have the researchers and the, the medical experts there saying, yes, this is why we need th this piece of information for contact tracing. And then everything else, remove it. Uh, because even from a, a, someone in my type of position, the gut insect is, instinct is collect as much information as possible. And you, this needs to be the opposite, collect as little information as possible. And then in, in continuing the creation of this, this policy, I think life of the data is an important parameter to set. How long do we absolutely need to keep this data? Because research all well and good, and I would really like to be able to prepare for the next pandemic, but right now I have a very black and white situation. I know for sure that the government and pri the private sector has a bad track record in how they use constituent data. What I don't know is what the next pandemic is gonna look like. It could be completely different from COVID-19. The symptoms could be completely different, how it's transmitted, like a lot of different things that all of the data we collected now aren't really gonna help. So that's the unknown. What I do know is how it's been treated in the past and very likely will be treated in the future if I give them all of this data. So in the policy creation, weeding out absolutely how long it needs to be retained would be paramount. And I think it's very important to just have a lot of consistency around the messaging with regard to why we need this data, what data we need, how it's helpful. And that's something that you wanna have community members involved in. You've spoken about having lawyers involved, having you know, obviously the mayor and other you know, politicians involved, but you wanna have community members who are supposed to be served by this process involved in that, in that discussion. So what, what do you think is too much information to be given? And this, the scientists or the doctors are telling us and epidemiologists, this is why we need the data. So that there needs to be sort of communication that goes both ways um, so that you get buy-in hopefully from the community when they understand why the data is required. And I think it's data that you don't keep to see if you can monetize it later or maybe it might be useful later. If you said you need it because you need to inform my family, friends, and other people that I met on the way, then use it for that purpose and then get rid of it. That's all you need it for. You keep it for that length of time. And then of course the city is also a, an employer. So I'll leave that to Tanya if you wanna weigh in on the employer side, but you did so much of that. But you know, the, those might overlap in terms of the city as an employer as well, but those are my recommendations. No, no, I, I agree with, with everything you, you just articulated. I mean, as I sit here and I think, um, you know, aside from, you know, what John was mentioning about the history of, of how, how the government has utilized and misused data, there's, there's, there's a level of, you know, whether the, the city, I'll speak to more specifically, even the, the state has the bandwidth in order to even manage all of that data, right? That's where outside companies come into play. That's why they use private companies in order to manage the data. 
I mean, I've seen instances where there's levels of incompetence, right? It's no, it's not intentional. It's just right sheer incompetence, and someone else just takes advantage and gets access to this to this particular data. Um, they're they're not um, they're not as rigid as they need to be. Um, they haven't put the safeguards in place that they need to put put in place. Not out of being malicious, but just because they don't have the bandwidth or the resources to do so. Um, but they have all of this particular data. So I'm thinking like if we farm it out or if it's farmed out to, you know, a private company or quasi private company and there are strict restrictions placed on, on that particular company and in huge penalties um, to enforce, maybe that's an avenue. Um, because, you know, with this pandemic, everything has been right. It's been fluid. It's, it's, it's evolving. We started out with, you know, it's just a cough to now you're using, losing your sense of, taste we don't even know all of the symptoms that are associated with um COVID-19 um and and you know the data may very well be helpful later on we don't know right we can't we're in a, such a fluid situation that we have no idea what that data could be used for um they talk about you know there were people that were in back in December had COVID we didn't even know, right? December, January, it's coming up, it's being revealed now that, that, that those people actually tested positive um, for COVID and that's why we have people that have the antibodies to it allegedly. Um, so, I, you know, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult question um, to grapple with, uh, with respect to that. I'm, I'm always an optimist, but I, and, and, and I always want to hope that people are, you know, utilizing things in, in, in the right format and way, but I mean, I cannot disagree with Sean more with respect to the track record, um, you know, that, that, you know, that the government has, has um, demonstrated down the years, including with respect to, you know, black, black people and, and using them as experiments for, for, for um, you know, certain, certain medical experience to test out certain, certain um, vaccinations and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, <laughs> Pray. <laughs> so I guess I just have one conceptual question. There's pending federal legislation. Some, at least one bill, uh, has state preemption and at least one bill does not allow for state preemption. So I guess my theoretical question for you guys is where should the main level of effort overall take place? Should there be a, a cookie cutter role on the federal level or should uh, resources be allocated to the state or city or community level? And would you trust a patchwork over a uniform federal policy? So yes. <laughs> um, there should be a federal policy with regard to how the data can be used and maintained. And there should be local and state uh, policies in place for how contact tracing can be implemented in those spaces because it's going to vary by state, by you know metropolis or like a rural area. Like it's just, it's going to be different. And so we do need that level of local expertise and application and states generally have public health power. So they should be responsible for doing some of that, but they do need the backup and, and guidance from the federal government as well. Anyone else? 
I would just like to say we've needed, you know, federal guidance on how data is protected for a while on a lot of different data. This is this is not the first time that there has been a hole in how my private information can be used in certain circumstances. And this is where we do get kind of a it, different flavors in different states. California's got different than New York. It's got different than Texas. Uh, I, I think this is something that we've needed for a while. And hopefully this, you know, crisis requiring the collection of even more personal information will kind of spur some action to really thoughtfully look into why regulation has lagged so much in this area and what can be done about that. John, I agree. And uh, I don't want to say I have the answer for why it's lagged, <gasps> but I think one of the answers for why it's lagged is, and again, not to sound ageist, but I think there has something to do with, you know, technology and these advancements that we're trying to make and regulate and the lawmakers and people in these seats from the senators except to representatives uh, and just politicians in general they seem to be a bit out of touch mm. and i think we saw this and we continue to see this in the tech space right trying to uh, manage and just monitor the facebook's the google's the amazons uh you know i, I think even with uh, zuckerberg at his uh senate hearing it was clear there was a major disconnect as far as what is Facebook. And at 2020, if we're still trying to explain that, mm -hmm. to explain contract tracing and data mining and data banks and all this stuff. So uh, I want, I, you know, I, while I do think the federal government should be the ones to take the charge and give some guidance here, especially with the laws, I, I do hope that they're thoughtful as far as who is in the rooms mm -hmm. to help make these decisions and iron out the language that's going to be used, right? I mean, I can even say from, you know, there's the the politician level and the administration level, but then there's also like the level of who is actually in tech roles in government. And even there, there is a skew because it's not competitive. I, in the government space, have a lot of problem finding good talent that is, you know, up to par with how fast tech is moving in all of the different areas just because Government's not a competitive hire of this specific sector of, of, the, of the economy. And that trickles down into everything because these guys are helping build the systems that collect this data, monitor and protect it. But also these, these people are responsible for helping educate the administration and, and the politician on what is happening. And if there is you know, an age slope that is decades old because all of the talent is going elsewhere, you're gonna this is gonna be a systemic problem thank you for listening to the 44th street podcast of the new york city bar association opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar find more city bar podcasts and program audio on itunes or google play or at our website at nycbar.org this podcast was produced by tim peterson eric friedman and alex cardaris